0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts, and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo, and I'm the Adult Learning Programme Manager at the Royal Academy. I'm delighted to introduce this afternoon's talk by Roberta Bernstein, co-curator of the exhibition Jasper John's Something Resembling Truth, who will be exploring in detail Jasper John's significant series of works, The Seasons, This talk is part of our Work in Focus series in which international experts examine iconic works from the RA exhibitions. We're really privileged to have um, Roberta here today, who's on a special visit to London for the opening of the John's exhibition. Um, She's been a friend of Jasper John's since 1967 and has written and lectured extensively on him. In 2003, she was guest curator and catalogue essay author for the exhibition Jasper John Numbers, at the Cleveland Museum of Art, and she is the author and project director of Jasper John's Catalogue raisonné of Painting and Sculpture, published by the Wildenstein-Plattner Institute in 2017. Um, so without further ado, please welcome Roberta Benstein. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Kara, for that lovely introduction. I fr- really appreciate it. And Thank you for inviting me to speak today on a work in focus from the Jasper Johns exhibition. I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to work with the Royal Academy on this exhibition, which, as I'm sure most of you know, is the first comprehensive showing of Johns' work in the UK since 1978. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank my co-curator, Edith Devaney, who It's been such a pleasure to work with. We uh, worked for a few solid years on this, and uh, I feel like she's become a dear friend, and thank you, Edith, very, very much. I also want to thank assistant curator Anna Testar, and the exhibition team led by Adoya Batia, and the publications team, who put together the beautiful catalog, Nick Tite and Peter Sawbridge, and artistic director Tim Marlowe, who was supportive all along the way of this exhibition. This is a photograph with Jasper Johns in his studio in Sharon, Connecticut. And Edith and I are with him as we are looking together at the three-dimensional model for this exhibition. Uh, I know I speak for Edith when I say thank you to Jasper Johns for all the help he gave us in um, developing this exhibition. He lent his advice and his personal support all along the way, and this is a document of how um, intensively he reviewed the project every step of the way. Uh, So we owe a thanks to him for what we see in the Royal Academy rooms today. The work and focus that I've chosen is actually not a single work, but four paintings conceived of as a group and painted exactly at the midpoint of Jasper Johns' 60-year artistic career. They clearly demonstrate one of the main ideas we hope the exhibition conveys. That is, the continuities and changes that run throughout Johns' works from 1954 to the present. Additionally, the series contains elements of all of the exhibition's eight themes from the first, which we've called Things the Mind Already Knows, to the very last one called Memory Traces. And they're the centerpiece of our section called Seasons and Cycles. The four paintings together, which you see here, present an allegory of the four seasons of the year, spring on the left, then summer, fall, or autumn, as it's called here, and the season we have just yesterday entered, and then winter. Also, it's an allegory of the four stages of of life, from childhood to maturity, middle age, and old age. The seasonal changes are conveyed in part by effects of light and weather. And you can see the spring shower in the painting called Spring on the left. And to the far right, the snow falling, indicating winter. Also in each. There's a tree branch. You can see it in this position in all of the works. And the branch buds, blooms, withers, and then dies, following nature's cycle of birth, maturation, decay, and death. The semicircle with an arm and an arrow that you see in each suggests a clock that marks the passage of time. And the life-size silhouette of a man found in each also is traced from a template of Johns' own shadow cast on the ground. The shadow in each is surrounded by objects and pictures that have personal associations for the artist and at the same time reinforce the theme of cyclical change which conveys universal meanings. The subtitle of this talk is taken from a 1947 musical composition by John Cage titled The Seasons. It was written as a ballet with choreography by Merce Cunningham. In composing the piece, Cage was influenced by the Indian concept of the seasons, where spring is associated with creation, summer with preservation, fall with destruction, and winter with quiescence. During the 1950s, Cage thought of writing a composition in which four of his closest friends would be paired with one of the seasons. John's, you see, I've labeled them, uh, was to be summer or preservation. And here we see him in this photograph in his studio in lower Manhattan in 1955, soon after he had met John Cage. Cunningham, who you see in the upper right, uh, was to represent fall or destruction. And we see him here performing during the 1940s. In the lower left of this group is artist Robert Rosenberg, who was to represent winter or quiescence. And on the right, uh, in the bottom, David Tudor, who was to represent spring or creation. Uh, We see him sitting in front of a piano here, but notice that he's blowing into a bowl. This was a piece by John Cage called Water Music. And he's actually making bubbles in the water as part of the piece that he's performing. So this was a very tight-knit group, and they all were mutually influential on each other. And when Johns painted his seasons decades later, he may have been thinking about the intensity and significance of the relationships formed at this period of his life and then applied the the concept to the paintings later on. The first of the group of four uh, was Summer, and it was painted as an independent work in St. Martin in the French West Indies, where Johns had a home and studio. In order to indicate the location, he added a little, it's hard to see here, but when you look at the painting, There's a little hummingbird in a nest on the branch of the tree in the painting, and there's also a seahorse near the center. On a canvas, tilted at an angle, is found John's signature image, the United States flag, and many examples of these will be found in the exhibition. His first flag painting dated from 30 years earlier, and was the first of the flat objects and signs which broke from the prevailing abstract expressionist style and opened new directions for art during the late 1950s. Compared to the abstract expressionist, self-expressive gestural style, Johns's art looked cool and detached. Johns' imagery, the flags, the targets, the numbers, were also blatantly representational, unlike the abstract canvases of de Kooning, Jackson Pollock, and others of their generation. And on the right, you see one of de Kooning's famous abstract expressionist works from the mid-50s. By the time he had painted the seasons, Johns had, in his words, dropped the reserve and introduced personal imagery but remained committed to a style that was more sensual and cerebral than it was overtly expressive. The double flag in summer, which you see below in the lower part, was based on specifically on his 1962 painting, Two Flags, a large oil on canvas. Notice that both of the flags uh, have cantons, with 48 stars, even though by 1962, the United States flag had 50 stars, marking the admission of Hawaii and Alaska to statehood. But 48 was the number of stars on the flag Johns grew up with since the 1930s, and the number on the first flag that he painted. So in a sense, what he's doing is painting the flag he remembers and the flag that marks the beginning of his uh, maturity as an artist. Note also in this work the tip of a double flag that's cropped at the edge, the left edge. This detail will be repeated in three of the uh, Four Seasons paintings. Note that above the flags is a reproduction of the Mona Lisa. This is a tribute to two important artistic predecessors, the Renaissance master Leonardo da Vinci and Marcel Duchamp, the famous Dadaist who will be featured in a show opening here soon, um, who had famously added a mustache and a goatee and thereby sexual ambiguity to a reproduction of this famous portrait. On the other half of this fictional painting, we see a canvas with pieces of pottery uh, painted on it, or seemingly hovering above it, you can't really tell, these are by turn of the 20th century American ceramicist George Orr, known for his eccentric forms and glazes. And Johns owns several pieces by Orr, including the ones pictured here. So all of these images have personal, very personal meanings and associations for Johns. Besides the flags, Johns included uh, another detail from his earlier works, and that is the arm and hand print marking a half circle. This image first appeared in the 1963 painting Periscope Park Crane, which you will also see in the exhibition, where the outstretched arm that you see here becomes a device to mark the surface, or at least it looks like it's traced the path in the surface of the painting to create this circle. The title, Periscope Hart Crane, is a reference to a poignant passage in Hart Crane's poem called The Bridge. And I'll just read you a few lines from that. While time clears our lenses, lifts a focus, resurrects a periscope to glimpse what joys or pain our eyes can share or answer. And that concept of the periscope, looking back, looking at the joy and pain, shows how Johns' work is engaged with memory from a very early point. And it comes through in this painting from 1963 all the way through into the works of the 80s and really right up to the present. Another repeated detail is the group of geometric forms that you see at the bottom. These are the circle, triangle, and square, which he repeats in various um, symmetrical arrangements in each of the season's paintings. These three geometric shapes represent the fundamentals of artistic form that remain with the artist throughout his life. And one of the works by Leonardo da Vinci that John's most admires is the one you see on the right called the Vitruvian Man, where the outstretched arms of an ideally proportioned figure are inscribed in the perfect forms of the square and the circle and Johns may have been thinking about this idea of the relationship of the human figure to the geometric forms that symbolize uh, both a kind of ideal, but also uh, represent uh, this idea that the artist seeks form, first and foremost, as a way to convey their thoughts and ideas and the beauty that they want to convey in their work. Uh, Johns has said that these shapes were specifically inspired by this 19th century drawing, the one at the top, by Japanese Zen master, Sengai Gibbon, which is titled Circle, Triangle, and Square. And someone actually had sent him a postcard of this. And he was so struck by it, its beauty, and it seemed to fit with the ideas he was developing in his Seasons paintings. He also said he thought of Paul Cézanne's famous dictum, to treat nature by the sphere, the cylinder, and the cone. He's a great admirer of Cézanne's work and the idea that these basic forms underlie all of nature. The structure of Summer, which is basically a vertical space divided in half, and some of its iconography derived from ventriloquists, which he painted in 1983, just two years later, uh, two years earlier than Summer, and this work too was in the exhibition. Um, it contains a double flag taped trompe l'oeil style to the surface. But instead of the red, white, and blue coloring, the flag is painted in its green, orange, and black complementaries. Notice also that here, one flag has 48 stars and the other 50 chronicling the passage of time. Uh, he uses this kind of change to show that you know, decades have passed, the world was different, between the 50s and the 80s when this was painted. Um, so there's a suggestion of that kind of change. Notice the, also the cropped edge of a flag that parallels what he then does a couple of years later in the seasons. Now a ventriloquist is a performer whose voice appears to come from elsewhere. And it's at this time that Johns' appropriations from others become an increasing element in his art. In Ventriloquist, he shows in the upper right a lithograph by abstract expressionist Barnett Newman, who was featured in last year's abstract expressionism show with the Royal Academy. And Johns may have been thinking about the relationship of his horizontal stripes to Newman's vertical zips. Um, He greatly admired the work of of Newman, and he actually owns this lithograph. Also, you can see again the George Orr pottery that seems to be floating in front of the surface again. And um, also a veiled reference to author Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which I think to this day is considered the great American novel, certainly, of the 19th century. Now, this image really is hidden until you look closely. Um, It's the image of a sperm whale traced from a wood engraving by Barry Moser, who illustrated a new volume of this famous novel close to the time John's painted ventriloquist. And if you haven't yet found it, I think here's the Barry Moser, notice the open mouth of the whale. Here's the mouth, the tail, here's the tail down here. And he kind of veils it with these vertical stripes. But you know, it's as if, you know, you're looking at this wall, the flag is very vivid. The Barnett Newman is very vivid. The parts come into view. And then you notice something lurking. And you gradually start making out the details and identify it. Um, it's a fascinating picture. It's from his series called his bathtub series. And all of these have, in the lower right, a bathtub with faucets of, what do you call the hardware, taps with running water and it's as if the viewer, the artist and then the viewer, are looking at the wall of the bathroom from this angle. And notice that there's a wicker hamper right next to the bathtub and on it a piece of pottery. And what you see there is uh, a pot that relates to British history unlike everything else which is quintessentially American. And this is actually the souvenir vase commemorating Queen Elizabeth II's Silver Jubilee in 1977. Johns had received it as a gift and possibly he received it I don't know exactly, when he traveled to London for the opening of his retrospective in 1978. But um, he loved uh, perceptual puzzles, and this is a brilliant um, example of what's called uh, a figure-ground reversal. And it's specifically called a Rubens vase, named after the Danish psychologist who invented it. So you see here, either the pot or the profiles in the background of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And you can see that Johns recreates the vase. And then in the background, here Queen Elizabeth, here Prince Philip. And this becomes a favorite image of his. As you go through the show, you'll see it in many different works. Uh, He uses it over and over again. Um, The foremost artistic predecessor that uh, Johns uh, looks to while he's painting summer and the rest of the seasons, however, is Pablo Picasso. John's adapted two works by Picasso, both of them reproduced in David Douglas Duncan's famous book called Picasso's, Picasso's. One of them is the work you see on the right called Minotaur, Moving His House. It's an autobiographical work painted at a time of great emotional stress and disruption in Picasso's personal and artistic life further unsettled by the rise of fascism and the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. When he painted Summer, Johns' life was also unsettled. He was traveling back and forth between St. Martin and New York and moving from one home and studio to another. As he described it, he was, like Picasso, shifting things from place to place. So, that was the idea that inspired him to do summer in the first place. John's adapted the canvas, ladder, and rope, as well as the tree branch and starry sky from Picasso. So, you can see what he has among his possessions is a big canvas, a ladder, all held together by a rope. There's a tree branch, and then this green sky with yellow stars, which Johns appropriates for his background. Johns's half circle with the arm also echoes the wheel of the cart that contains the minotaurs' possessions. Among these possessions is a horse giving birth and It's sort of hard to say at first, but here's the head, here's the body, and here's the baby foal coming out. And this is a reference to his lover, Marie Therese, who had recently given birth to their daughter. Notice that um, Johns doesn't have an image like this in his work, but he does put in the seahorse right here. And there's no question. He was looking so closely at the Picasso that he wouldn't have been consciously making a pun. Um, But this is a detail where he clearly is questioning gender stereotypes, since the seahorse is one of the few creatures where the male of the species gives birth to the young. You know, could the young come out of his pouch? so it, it, it's a question of you know male and female creativity new life or, or the creation of new art and you know it makes you think about those kinds of questions which of course is really the essence of what i think is important about johns's work the more you engage the more he challenges you to think about your assumptions and to question your assumptions and stretch yourself and break away from the habits that keep you locked into one way of seeing things. And hopefully, some of you may have seen the show already, but as you go through, you'll realize that this is at the core of what John's art is all about. I wanted to just show a close-up of the Picasso. It's actually quite a small painting, but you can see it's packed with detail. And I think you can see even better, you know, the branch, the horse, which is all, you know, uh, twisted and upside down. Um, But notice how Picasso shows himself as a very virile minotaur. You know, this is typical of Picasso. And then John shows himself as a, shadow, almost insubstantial. He's sort of there in the background. Um, it's a very different idea of one's identity and um, one's sexuality, really, as well. The other Picasso painting that struck Johns' attention and that he um, was creating a dialogue with was this one called The Shadow. And uh, this work shows Picasso's shadow cast across his bedroom floor as he walks through the doorway into the bedroom. And this is the bedroom he had shared with his lover, Francois Gillot, who had recently left him. So the painting, records the memory of her presence. She's no longer there, but as he walks into the room, he sees her lying on their bed, and it provokes the memory of her uh, being there and their relationship, which has now fallen apart. In John's art, there's often a sense of emotional pain and loss. But little, if anything, specific is revealed about the circumstances that may have triggered such feelings. And therefore, I think in many ways, the work becomes more universally relevant. You know, there are personal details, but the feelings that come through are ones that can be recognized and sympathize with no matter what your experience is. The concept for a series on the theme of the seasons arose while Johns was working on illustrations for an edition of poetry by Wallace Stevens. Johns remembered Stevens' famous poem, The Snowman, and thought about using images of the four seasons to illustrate the edition. He didn't, however. He made only a frontispiece based on summer, but he soon embarked on the other paintings that then became called The the Seasons. The first one he painted after summer was winter, and notice that the shadows are on the opposite side. Instead of the bright, warm sunshine of the one on the left, you get the gray of winter. Uh, The ladder is broken now, the panel with the ore pots is upside down, the arm moves in the opposite direction, pointing downward. In summer, it's moving downward, but in winter, it's fallen all the way to the bottom. The child's drawing of a snowman is a direct reference to Stephen's poem. And I just show you the last stanza for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. It's really a beautiful poem and it fits with the feeling that Johns wants to capture and convey in his painting of winter. Uh, The next work, the group, is called Fall, which is the time of middle age, and at the time John's painted it, he was 55 years old, so he fell right into the middle age category, and it's the only one of the group that uh, he still owns. Each one has a different owner, and it's really quite a coup that the Royal Academy was able to assemble all four for this exhibition. Uh, But I think it's interesting that you know this is the one he wanted to keep because he most identified it at the point in his life when he painted it. Um, At the right you see a photograph of uh, the painting on the wall in John's studio. This is him at the age he painted Fall with Um, On the right, his art dealer, Leo Castelli, with whom Johns had been showing for almost 30 years by this time. Uh, They developed a very close friendship and Castelli was really a, a father figure in many ways for Johns. I don't know if Johns would say that, but that was the relationship that I think they had. In fall, Things literally fall apart and fall down as if slipping out of the picture space so here is the moment the ladder breaks by the time winter comes it's broken but this is when it breaks the rope also slips so that everything falls down and revealed on a second panel Behind the forest is a skull and crossbones, of course, a symbol of death. This is from a, a poster a warning of avalanches. You can read in French the words here: "Shoot de gloss." So watch out for falling snow and ice. And uh, the, uh, the other uh, image is a reference to. Marcel Duchamp, I'll mention it in a minute, but notice here the branch that's now broken and the leaves have withered. And also the arm has descended further, going toward the bottom. The figure the painting actually includes two figure ground reversal portraits. One, this profile. And then another one down here, and you can see more clearly what the sources are. Uh, in this slide, the Marcel Duchamp self-portrait and profile that you see on the top was modified. Oh shoot! Sorry that, was modified by Johns. And you see the Duchamp profile here. And then down at the bottom, in this section, where you see the falling George Orr parts, you see a Rubens vase. But this time, the profiles show Picasso's face. And this goes back to a print that Johns did the year Picasso died in 1973 called Cuff to Picasso. And that's what you see. Um, on the right-hand side of the slide. But he's copied it in that detail where everything's falling down. Okay, here we see the last work he painted called Spring. And on the right, you see a photograph of John's um, around age four. I think it's my favorite photograph of John's from every, any period, although the one at the beginning of this show is another one of my favorites. But you can see he has a twinkle in his eye, and the way he's wearing that hat. You you can tell he's going somewhere. Uh, He said later in his life that by age five, he had started drawing, was drawing all the time, and never stopped. So from a very early age, he was focused on making art. of course, spring represents childhood when the creative impulse is born. And he includes, with his own shadow, the shadow of a boy. And this was actually traced from a friend's child for this painting. And the man's appears to kind of grow out of the boy here. In spring, the man's shadow was in the center with the boy's below, and notice that the geometric shapes, which are in a different configuration than they are in summer, fall, or winter, are present, but they're barely formed. This suggests that the artistic impulse is just starting, and the uh, talent and uh, skill to render form is also at its beginning stage. Notice that objects are cropped at the edges suggesting that they would meet if the space were scrolled. And also notice that there's no flag visible because Johns has not yet conceived of his painting of the American flag which will mark his mature life as an artist. Now we find in this work too ambiguous figures. Here's the silver jubilee vase hovering in front. But there's also the famous duck-rabbit paradox, where you either see the image as a rabbit with long ears sticking out behind, or a duck with a beak in front. And it kind of flips from one to the other. And then another perceptual puzzle that he uses in this and other works is the old woman, young woman. So you see in one image either an old woman, and if you see that one, this is her nose, and this is her mouth. You see her in profile. The young woman, the nose is the side of her face. This is her eyelash. This becomes her hat as she turns her head away. And again, it's one of these images that You see one way or another, and the mind is pulled in different directions. And these kinds of images are found in books on the psychology of perception, which fascinated Johns. And he's read a lot of them because this is what he's interested in. You know, how does the mind make uh, sense of what is perceived through the eye? And, you know, all of the ambiguity that can occur. You know, you see something, you think you know what it is, but then your mind um, may tell you it's actually something else. So, you know, these kinds of puzzles um, fascinate him. After completing the four paintings, Johns undertook a major series of etchings The first ones were in color, closely following the coloring and imagery in the paintings. And then he um, used only black and white. The same four plates were used in all of them. And uh, what he did was he changed the details through reworking the plates. You see this in the last room of the current exhibition, where you see the 15 states that led to a single etching, and you see how Johns reworked the copper plate. Um, you could see it in this series as well. Notice that he starts with summer here and ends with spring. This is different from how the paintings had been displayed and also how the color etchings were displayed. Uh, and This is significant because we have chosen in this exhibition to show summer at the beginning of this linear sequence and spring at the end, implying that winter isn't an ending, a finality, but rather leads to spring and there's a constant renewal of nature and life. He also uh, changes some of the prevalent details. Notice in winter, the figure nearly disappears. In spring, the figure of the man nearly disappears. And the stars that you find in summer become spiral galaxies. So the space becomes more cosmic rather than just the space of the Earth. And this is something he continues to develop. This is the next etching, where he uses a vertical format. And you go from summer to fall to winter to spring, zigzagging. But this kind of arrangement also suggests more of a circular pattern, where it's not clear what's the fixed beginning or what's the fixed end or if there is any such thing. And in the final etching he totally dispels the notion of a fixed beginning and end. Um, And he takes the four plates and arranges them in a cross-wheel type of pattern. He actually had to cut up the copper plates in order to fit them together in the middle. Um, And we have included this uh, version of the etching in our exhibition. And you can see here, the figure of the boy starts to take prominence. The man is less prominent. The ladder leads upward to this cosmic space full of galaxies. But if you look, you can see other details, like the snowman, and other details that Uh, from all of the other seasons. and um, Just to show how The Seasons carries over into his subsequent works, this is a large untitled painting that we've included in the exhibition and he takes the uh, cross wheel etching and includes it as an element in the right section of this canvas and again you see the boy with the shapes and the ladder pointing upward. There's a spiral galaxy swirling around behind. On the left hand side the image um, of the floor plan is the plan of the house Johns grew up in when he was a child. He grew up in Allendale, South Carolina, in his grandfather's home after his parents' divorce and The house had been destroyed by the time he did this painting, but he recreated it from memory and again, you know, this is a very personal detail, but I think all of us remember the house we grew up in. you know not only is it just a physical space, but it's a space full of memories full of psychological dimensions that um, are captured by um, these kinds of um, spaces that framed our childhood, and that's really what he wants to convey. The Seasons imagery was um, kind of revived in his work um, 25 years after he painted the original season's paintings in a series called Five Postcards. And one of the things we were most excited about with the show is to have the four seasons facing the five postcards as they do when you walk into the seasons and cycles gallery. Um, Because we wanted a dialogue to be created between the series he painted when he was 55 years old and the series he painted when he was 80 years old. And of course, he's looking at the cycle of life now from a different perspective at age 80. Uh, Now the shadows of the man and boy have become translucent and luminous and are painted white instead of gray. The latter reappears, now with a yellow cloth pinned onto it. He includes blue circles that represent the cyclical idea and again the silver jubilee vase and another Rubens vase with his own profiles as the background. Also he puts along the bottom a row of color circles like those in a child's watercolor set which all of us probably have had, even if we never developed into a great artistic talent. I think we all had those watercolor sets. So, you know, it does represent childhood and the beginnings of making art. But he then painted a second painting. These eventually became five, but this second one Notice that the colors are smeared. They're like starting to be used and dissolved. Um, also, other things change. The colors are muted. The ladder breaks so that things get, start to get disrupted. And as you'll see, this series, like the seasons, becomes an allegory of the changes of life without being so specifically tied to four seasons or specific ages of human development. The next two, and he numbered them, so these have to be in a specific order according to John's. The one on the left, number three, uh, is actually interestingly inscribed with the date of John's 81st birthday. May 15, 2011. So maybe this one had special relevance for him. Notice that the color is eliminated except for the disks, which are now further distorted from use. The latter becomes whole again. The silver jubilee vase tilts as if it's starting to slide out of the picture. And then to the right in the fourth of the postcards, the man's shadow dissolves and is practically invisible. And the boy's position reverses. Uh, There are three vases instead of two, as if somehow the silver jubilee vase has multiplied as it starts to slide. Another detail is the flames that appear to come around the figure now what do these mean in John's works things take on symbolic meanings but they're not fixed meanings you know what do those flames mean are they the flames are they hellfire maybe you know he's thinking about his mortality he was raised as a southern baptist and even though he's doesn't practice that religion anymore. you know this is what you know we all still carry with us whatever we grew up with is somewhere in the back of our mind. Uh, maybe it's the fire of the kiln that that the pottery is forged in. You know we don't know for sure. But in the final postcard, We now see that the man has completely disappeared. His profiles have disappeared. Um, Only a black spot marks where he was. But the child remains, and everything starts to get kind of, um, I don't know, it looks kind of dissolving and ethereal. As a matter of fact, you see what maybe you could read as a column of smoke or a column of pots, which actually it is, but it looks like smoke rising. But notice, what about the color disks? The color disks that had dissolved now take shape again. But interestingly, if you were looking at the whole group, you would see that the colors now go backwards. So what went from red to orange to yellow, uh, from the left to right, now goes from right to left. Mm -hmm. So with Johns, I mean, the more you look and the more you look at details and compare one work with the next, the more you get out of the work. I mean, I think about it as, you know, reading a good poem. You know, you read it, you get the sense of how the words are laid out, but then if you read it more carefully, and you sit, go into depth about how the poet is using language and the metaphors, it, you know it just gains more depth and becomes a more significant um, aesthetic experience and just moving personal experience. And I think that's how Johns's work really does operate. Uh, So here we see the two series, um, and as I said in the exhibition, the two groups face each other. And the viewer can see how the artist's imagery and formal strategies are adapted and altered in the 25 years between them. And also, hopefully, can see the themes that run through John's art for the 60 years from his iconic flags and targets to his later allegories and tracings. And just uh, to conclude, um, this is a photograph of me with John's in his Sharon studio, and I'm working on the catalog resume and. Um, visiting, as I did many times, to ask him questions that he very graciously and patiently answered. But the main reason I wanted to show it is because you can see the five postcards were on his studio wall, you know, and that was always the most exciting thing, and I know for Edith, when we go to the studio, to see what he was working on, to see the next thing, and you know, we have one of his most recent paintings in the show, dated 2016. Um, you know, I met Johns 50 years ago when I was a graduate student in art history. And for me, this exhibition at the Royal Academy is a wonderful, wonderful culmination of the years I've known Johns and written on his work. and. Again, I want to thank the Royal Academy for allowing me to participate in such an amazing show. And I hope you all enjoy the exhibition as much as we all do. So thank you very much.
1: Hello, thank you. That was fantastic. It sounded like it was no mean feat, you mentioned, to bring those paintings together. I was just wondering how difficult, if at all, was it to decide on the um, order that they would go in within the exhibition? Because they weren't in the original order you mentioned. But uh, was John's happy with the order that you've put them in?
0: Well, yeah, thank you. I hope you all heard that about the order we put the seasons in. Well, you know, we talked about you know how we would present them, and it just seemed like you know they had always been shown at the last major retrospective, for example, and other exhibitions since with some or first, but I always have thought that it, because of the way he worked the imagery out in the prints that finally he didn't want winter to be the end, that he really thought spring should be the end, and we discussed it with him, and, you know, because if he had said, you know, the paintings are one thing, I always want them to be in this order, of course we would have respected that. Um, But when we presented it, he was fine, he said, yeah, I think that would be really a good idea, and was very supportive of it. So we decided to do it. Uh, what explains his fascination with Duchamp and uh, oh, Picasso? Yeah. Well, he from a very early age, he was f- fascinated with Marcel Duchamp. Um, this started around 1960. He just was fascinated. It wasn't so much about Duchamp's ready-mades, but I think he enjoyed them. It was really the way Duchamp thought about art. and was always questioning what art was and what it could be. And also his wit, his way of dealing with, um, you know, how art related to the world, the relationship of art and life. And a lot of his earlier works have references to Duchamp. Uh, Picasso came later. You know, the first things he did were the prints around the time Picasso passed away. But then later in the 80s, he became increasingly fascinated with Picasso. And at that time, when he was doing uh, tracings after Matthias Grunewald's Isenheim altarpiece, he had done uh, tracings of a Cezanne Bather's picture, and he continued his interest in Duchamp and just added Picasso to the group that he was, it was a way for him to create a dialogue with an artist whom he greatly admired, to, to use their work and reinterpret it and adapt it in his own works. And of course, Duchamp and Picasso are kind of the polar opposites of 20th century art, right? I mean, Duchamp's the cerebral conceptual artist and Picasso's, you know, spill it all out, you know, invent, you know, every formal change you can think of. So I think he wanted to incorporate those two polarities of modern art in his own work through this dialogue.
1: When you describe all these amazing details and the influences and where they've come from, it strikes me that it implies that he was a great planner of the works, but I wonder if that was actually true and whether they evolved more instinctively or whether they were really planned in the detail, the way the detail
0: implies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question, the question of how much planning went into these works. He very rarely, yes, sketchbooks, where he'll make notes and work things out with seasons, uh, I believe, after summer, he planned out how the series would work and some drawings before he did the paintings. I think he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to use Minotaur moving his house as the uh, work that he was referencing. I think he knew he was gonna use the ventriloquist uh, format and so I think most of the images were probably planned out in his mind, but I think from my knowledge of watching him work that you know, spontaneous things happen as he works, even in the most planned out work. You know, the color, the nuancing of the details, you know, happens in the process of working. So it's never this rigidly planned thing there's always the spontaneous element as he actually executes the work. Thank you. Thank you all.
1: Thank you you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.